0: Welcome to another episode of News from a Boring Dystopia. Today, we discuss the Cold War in the Middle East. Joining us is a special guest, Shahed Gorashi. Hopefully, I'm pronouncing that right. He is a U.S. foreign policy analyst who has written for Newsweek, Business Insider, and The Atlantic. He is a graduate of the John Hopkins Schools of International Studies. Introducing Shahed.
1: Glad to be here. How are you?
0: Doing well, doing well. And uh, introducing uh, our panelists again, Uh, me, Antonio, uh, of course, Bruno and George.
2: 2020. We're in the UK. We're in the second quarantine. The US has gone nuts. But let's actually start off by what started this year with a bang. And I'm sorry for the pun, but be, being a specialist in in foreign policy analysis, what do you think? What do you what do you think the world stood on the assassination of Kasim Soleimani?
1: I think it was a highly dangerous uh, and risky maneuver uh, for the Trump administration. Mm. Um, The idea that killing Hassan Soleimani on Iraqi soil was going to help uh, U.S. national interest anyway was a false uh, and problematic strategy. Uh, It just shows that uh, the Trump administration's maximum pressure has failed. Because the point of implementing a maximum pressure strategy and, and putting sanctions on Iran is to the Hawks uh, in the administration is to establish deterrence and say, Iran's not going to do X, Y, or Z. And when that fails uh, and you are forced to further escalate, that means your your initial strategy failed and now you're risking war from happening. And when the Iran responded uh, against Al-Assad air base, I believe it was an air base or a military base in, uh, in Iraq, Uh, there was a very close chance that U.S. military personnel could have died. Now, we had uh, over 100 different cases of uh, concussions and other traumatic brain injuries on that base from U.S. soldiers, but no one had died. But if by some off chance, or there was a very good chance, that someone had died, that could have resulted in a war that we uh, barely dodged.
2: -hmm. And I think think that's just a perfect way to close call. Yeah, it was definitely a close call. call, And I think that's just a the perfect way to come into what is the extremely convoluted history of the Middle East, and particularly in relation to the U.S. Now, I remember when when I was at university, I remember that at the time I was just writing on um, the 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 policy of nuclear weapons. I was with. One of my, I was actually sitting in an exam, and I remember thinking about this. Um, and what's, in, <clears throat> I remember Kenneth Waltz saying that we should give Iran the bomb. I remember it being a very particular quote. Um, so, just with that in mind, I just obviously you specialize in the role of the US and how the US is involved. I believe. So how, do, how about we start talking about the role of the US in the Middle East from the 2003 invasion until today and what can then become the role of the US in the Middle East in your opinion? Um, so obviously we have the 2003 invasion which to an extent some people will be proud of, some people just judge a complete failure. I particularly think it's a failure, I don't know how other people feel, how do you feel? Shahid. I would no, definitely say uh, I'll, 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 I'll
3: <laughs> those, with,
2: those, with
3: those two descriptions, yeah. I'll go with the failure side. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah, and there is if you go guys go to the Shahed uh Twitter's account, there is a very interesting post with like uh the number of terrorist activities in the Middle East after and before the the okay. Iraq invasion. And you see that before after the Iraq invasion, I mean Spread it out, I mean all the Middle East completely uh, taken over by these uh, militant serious attacks and groups and organizations
2: It's a very interesting thing because right. obviously, obviously the, um, the us got involved in Iraq saying we're going to stop terrorism, but you could actually say that the us has fathered terrorism in the Middle yeah. East
1: Force begets force
2: yeah. So um, obviously we have the 2003 invasion, the 2011 bombing of Libya um, with Obama, and then but then you have the Trump administration. So it was very interesting because obviously Trump said we're going to go very Trump, basically went very isolationist and said we're not going to get involved outside of the US. And then 2020 rolls around and you've got Kasim Soleimani. So. What's interesting for me, and I don't, I mean, this is more about speculation than anything else. What do you think is going to be the US policy towards the Middle East with Biden? So,
1: as you covered, uh, we've been in the Middle East for well, for decades and decades, but in terms of the post Iraq invasion, we've been solving every flare up through military force. There's something happened. There's a. There's. We need to airstrike this person. We need to deter this. We need to bomb that. And we've heavily invested on hard power and not enough on soft power. Mm-hmm. And what's and what's hopeful. Uh, we'll see what happens. There's there's so many uh, evolving uh, scenes. We don't know if Saudi Arabia is going to continue the war in Yemen under Biden or how that's going to lay out, for example, or. Uh, the future of Syria, Afghanistan is still unclear, but one thing that the Trump administration administration did that I believe Biden by, by administration can help balance out is that we've been pigeonholed with two or three partners in the region. We're very, they're very close with what, Israel, with what Israel wants to do, close with the UAE, close with Saudi Arabia. And under Trump, when Jamal Khashoggi was killed or when Saudi Arabia is obliterating Yemen they feel they can get away with it because the Trump administration will cover for them. Now if you heard uh, Joe Biden in the primary debates with among other Democrats he said that he will have a tougher line against Saudi Arabia. At the same time he's also said he wants to return to the Iran nuclear deal. While so many potential strategies are still unclear, that rebalancing of giving an open door for diplomacy with Iran, while also letting Saudi Arabia know that it can't run with impunity, despite being a US partner, uh, is smart for the US in terms of making sure that all sides know there could be consequences if you could go down a certain line. So I think that is the optimistic uh, outlook in terms of the region.
0: Yeah, my um, question, well, my question is really quickly: um, how is that? How is there? What's the confidence in the U.S. for being consistent? Because you you can see the policies completely change within just four years.
1: Uh, do you do you think right, that there's like a lot of trust? And yeah, and it depends which audience uh, you are speaking to. Uh, in terms of Iran, the Trump administration has given the uh, you can call them hardliners or more uh, people who toe that government line to a T. To a um, the hardliners are uh, taking advantage of this moment of the people who are in Iran's political uh, atmosphere, considered moderates, that those who put their foot out and were, were encouraging diplomacy with the U.S. were now wrong. And now the hardliners saying, hey, look, the, the U.S. pulled out of the Iran nuclear deal. We were right. We can't trust them. And now you guys can't negotiate again because we're going to get tricked again. You can trick us once, but we can't trick, trick them again. And now uh, the current government in Iran under Rouhani and, and Javad Zarif are going to have a more difficult time uh, reengaging the U.S. because of, the, of their d- domestic political uh, scene. So, yes, it, it's, it's hurt. That process for for uh, diplomacy in the future—it's not dead. I think, depending on the uh, s- security strategy that Iran determines, that yes, we d- we do need to engage with the U.S. Um, the economy is in really bad shape right now. There's COVID, so there's still a possibility they'll engage with the U.S. But it does make it that much more difficult for the for uh, certain elements of the Iranian government to uh, to be okay with reaching out to the U.S. On the Saudi angle, they're more concerned that uh, they had such a good run under Trump that they got to get away with a lot, got the arms sales. Um, Trump backed Saudi Arabia in regards to the Qatar blockade, in regards to uh, the Khashoggi murder. So they were very critical of the Obama administration, for example. So they're happy. So now they're concerned oh, we're we going back to the Obama era. They also heard. Joe Biden speak about uh, being more balanced in regards to Saudi Arabia if he were to come on. So they're more concerned. Iran is still, in terms of their like public relations rhetoric, they're saying it doesn't make a difference who's in power. At the end, we just want a return to the Iran nuclear deal. We don't trust the US regardless. But I think uh, it is a the, the potential diplomacy is greater under, under Biden. Uh,
3: speak, talking about the Biden government, uh, in the future, administration, Do you think that the U.S. will rejoin the former nuclear deal with Iran, and and or do you think that the new policy after Donald Trump will create a new deal framework? With- so
1: it's a it's a good question because we see uh, different actors in Congress, among within the Democrats, within the Republicans. Uh, already playing out how what this is going to look like. Uh, so it's still unclear. Now, Biden has said he wants to return to the Iran nuclear deal. So we already have that established. Whether what aspects are included in the negotiations. So, you, what the, what the a Biden administration can do, they can step forward and say, we're going to return to the deal immediately as long as Iran complies first. That's what campaign that said, we want Iran to comply. Because Iran did, Trump pulled out, and Iran said, we're going to reduce, if you're pulling out and putting sanctions back on, we're going to reduce compliance in return. So uh, the Biden campaign said, as long as Iran returns compliance, we will then return to the Iran nuclear deal. Now, there are people who said, we want to bring in Iran's foreign policy in the region negotiations. We want to bring in Iran's uh, ballistic missile uh, production into the uh, negotiations. The problem with doing that up front is that you're going to confuse the negotiation process and extend it out, and it'll be much more complicated. Uh, but the smarter thing to do is to return to the deal immediately, and using that new diplomatic atmosphere, then stack on other aspects to the deal. Because even the even the Iran deal itself requires certain extensions because certain five-year um, aspects deadlines. Uh, are already expiring. So return the Iran nuclear deal up front and add on those pieces. But right now, in terms of domestic politics, uh, there are like lobbying groups and interest groups who are already uh, going to Congress and, and making announcements. Uh, Netanyahu has already said he hopes that Biden administration does not return uh, to the Iran nuclear deal. Uh, Saudi Arabia obviously is going to protest along, along with their allies. Uh, so it'll be a very difficult. Your diplomacy with Iran, just on a D, in DC itself, is such a big lift to sell that that's always going to be an issue. When it does require some political capital, and uh, and he already, Biden will already have to deal with COVID and so many other things domestically, in terms of foreign policy, that uh, it'll be a negotiation in terms of when, how will I spend my political capital upfront? At the same time. Uh, Iran has presidential elections in June, and because of what happened under uh, just the atmosphere right now in terms of COVID, before that, um, the betrayal that uh, certain Iranians in the government might have felt in terms of the Trump pulling out of the deal, all of that will lead them to having a hard line against the U.S. and voters and whoever does participate in the voting process to Bring in a hardline president, and that make negotiations that much more difficult. So, do you use the window up front, or are you more flexible and assume that Iran will negotiate regardless? So, that's the question too. So, do you? So, there is a window there that uh, that requires some strategy and thinking.
0: And, and just to like break in, just to create a little bit more context, this is in the context of, for like the audience. This is in the context of the U.S. overthrowing a democratically elected. Leader in Iran not too long ago that probably created a lot of distrust with Iran in 1953. And the US. Yeah, yes. so I think that's so, yeah, I to, mean, to it, 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 that,
1: there's a big I mean, we can that can be a whole uh podcast in of itself. The, the terms of I US think, I think w-
3: more than one podcast, more, more than, than one, one.
1: podcast, or one or one very, very long one, we can, we can decide on how we want how we would end up doing that, but yeah, there uh, Iranians historically, um you can go back like a, like a century while they're critical of British foreign policy in the region, they were actually very pro-American. Uh, so it, it was the first hit. Yes. was in the 1950s uh, with the coup. Uh, and then certain aspects in terms of the Iran Iraq war, the sanctions that were placed on the country. Um, the U S did end up supporting Iraq in that war. Uh, obviously the U S had its own, uh, grievances in terms of the hostage crisis um, and then you have the the Americans shooting down the commercial airline jet over the Persian Gulf in 1988 and, and killing uh, nearly 300 passengers on board. So there's a lot of uh, uh, grievances Wounds,
3: to right? Wounds, a lot of wounds, wounds. Huge wounds.
1: Yeah. And then there were certain aspects like uh, under the Bush administration. Uh, the U.S. just invaded Afghanistan, invaded Iraq. Uh, Iran was using its intelligence services to help the U.S. in Afghanistan uh, because they were trying to get rid of the Taliban as well, or the, or the mutual enemy. And then instead of, instead of uh, embracing a grand bargain that Iran had offered, uh, the U.S. ended up, the, George Bush himself went at uh, the State of the Union and called Iran as part of the axis of evil in response to Iran helping them Afghanistan and everything so instead of using that moment to pursue diplomacy they've been rejected a number of times as well uh so while both sides have shot down opportunities and and politically they haven't aligned when, when there's a pro-diplomacy leader in one country the other one uh elects a, a hard line Even the first half of the Obama administration was under Ahmadinejad right so it makes things very difficult so the second half of the of the uh obama presidency plus the overlapping with Rouhani align things perfectly for the gc3 to happen uh so it's so it's uh un- unfortunate that trump came in power and pulled out but uh we'll see what happens and i think the healing process it's gonna take a long time and one iran deal you get that one piece to go in the right direction and gets and it gets pulled away and that's another wound uh to add to the list so it's um, it's definitely unfortunate
2: yeah actually on that on that note i mean this is a very um it's a very open question actually you can you can a- you can answer it in a variety of different ways but i'm just picking your brains and asking you do you think that iran is a genuine existential threat to the u.s
1: absolutely not iran yeah. is a regional power uh mm-hmm. its defense budget it's it's minuscule compared to its neighbors uh it cannot project offensively in any way. It has to use militias uh, and to, pro- to project anywhere, basically, and whether you look at uh, Syria or uh, especially in Iraq. So in the threat inflation that's in play here is very problematic for US foreign policy. Because even the Middle East as a whole, depending on what numbers you look at, is either 3 to 5% of the world population or 3 to 5% of the world economy. So investing this much uh, of your military assets, your rhetorical uh, abilities towards a region that doesn't influence the globe in that sense is, is problematic for U.S. foreign policy. And there's and there's there's growing issues like China, climate change, COVID that are uh, much more, more important. Than, and this investment yeah, exactly. on Iran is not, doesn't really make sense.
2: Yeah, so then why is the U.S. so obsessed with Iran? I mean, I remember discussing this at university, and one of the one of the answers that came up, which I think is actually very accurate, is Israel. Do you think? Do you think? Why would you think? Why would you say that the U.S. is so focused on its foreign policy with a relation to Iran? Do so? I remember someone mentioning, oh, maybe it maybe it has to do with the special relationship that the U.S. holds with Israel, and they can pose an existential threat to them. So there say?
1: are there are there are different uh, reasonings. So in general, if you look at just the military industrial complex in the U.S., their needs threat inflation is helpful because you make you create these enemies. Uh, it's it's uh, it adds to the uh, the high Pentagon budget, which which is their benefit. Even after the Cold War, when things should have been uh, calming down, they made Iraq into this big enemy um, first, right? So you need to have someone that you need to threat inflate to create this to uh, encourage the military industrial complex to keep going. Now, in terms of of U.S. partners in the region, whether it be an ally like uh, Israel or a strategic partner like Saudi Arabia, there is a concern that a Iran with close relations with the U.S. would become very powerful. Because it's it's a large country. It has a relatively... uh, Diversified economy uh, that is not reliant on oil like Saudis is. Uh, it has um, a large population of over eighty million people. So if you had a fully has country... Russia in
3: its side. Sorry. Has Russia in its side.
1: Yeah, yeah. So exactly. So like, it, it, I won't say on its side. I mean, they're right now they've been, they've been yeah,
3: overlapping I mean, perfectly
1: more... mm-hmm. in terms of of their of their uh, uh, of of a strategic, strategic overlap. So you're right. So yeah, so if they were unleashed, uh, Saudi Arabia is going to be concerned over this uh, country that has like over twice its population right across the Persian Gulf uh, that's now powerful. Um, Israel itself has a foreign policy doctrine of having the strongest military in the region because it's small, so it wants to be able to have this uh, uh, military dominance. So yeah, so it's, it is helpful for for them in terms of just a uh, security strategy aspect to have an Iran, regardless of what the government it doesn't matter. If they don't care if you're an autocracy or democracy or this or that. That's not a concern, especially in Saudi Arabia, which is, you know, extremely autocratic, but their main concern is, uh, Iran remaining down and out and dealing with, uh, even MBS himself said, I don't want, I want, I don't want Iran projecting to, uh, externally. I want them to be dealing with, issues domestically and that's why you have these things pop up with certain separatist groups suddenly acting up um which mbs warned about as well
0: and just to interrupt really quickly i'm not an expert in this area by any means but from what i've been reading it was you know a lot of comments on reddit were saying that uh which is where i inform myself the uh the Iran, the uh, Saudi Arabians—that's <laughs> kind of dangerous, sub- though. It's <laughs> <laughs> obviously apparent. The, uh, the uh, a lot of the Saudi Arabians also um, see the Iranians as a republic, as a threat in and of itself because it is a kingdom that is largely U.S. backed. Whereas, you know, Ar- Iran basically overthrew their U.S.-backed kind of like king,
1: and then from it, it, yeah. am I mistaken with this? No, so I think that was a, a an especially a concern post-Iranian revolution, maybe in the early 80s, because Iran set an example of what it's like to overthrow a monarch. And in, in Iran's case, it put in as long a longer Republican power. And even though its democratic elements are very uh, dysfunctional and problematic, there are certain elements that, uh, appear that way right so uh, Saudis were concerned is this going to spread to us same thing happened in Iraq and, and a number of other um, autocratic neighbors of Iran the, of Iran setting this example now even today um, it's more shifted to a foreign policy competition and in, in, in Saudi Arabia plays into that as does Iran by talking about like ethnic rivalries or religious rivalries but that's that's actually secondary and in, in, a debate that happens at a lower level. The, the actual issue at a government level is strict international relations, in my opinion, where you're talking about two large countries. It could be country A, country B. We put them next to each other, there's going to be competition regardless. But they're going to use certain elements uh, to fuel the fuel the flames uh, domestically. But in terms of the setting an example, that's still there, but it was more of a concern of, is this revolution going to keep spreading uh, to our neighbors and that's uh, that was an that was an issue in the 80s for sure.
3: Uh I have a question from Sharia you know, audience, uh, Sharia is facing some problems today so probably she won't be making joined our conversation but she sent me some questions and I think it's very interesting. Uh I mean she goes like why is America letting Saudi and Iran rivalry dictate policy in the region? When the first question and and she goes like uh west is complex in this we don't see in mainstream western media but us along with britain and france have funded military actions in yemen and provide intelligence to saudis and uae what is the west role in this i don't understand why even today after the catastrophe created by the war on terror why does the west still play a huge role in creating more chaos in the region why is America letting Saudi
1: Iran Dictate,
3: right. dictates policy in the region?
1: Uh yeah, so could we discuss a little bit, I think there's a couple of aspects. Uh yeah, there are just like the straight arm sales, uh oil security guarantees. However, those descriptions are not good reasons for US foreign policy in general, right? And I do believe that there is a inertia within D.C. to keep the status quo as it is. Uh, Saudi Arabia will fund certain think tanks in D.C. They will lobby in D.C. So there's on-the-ground efforts um, within the city to keep things the way they are because it's to their benefit. Um, it's very difficult to break the mold and go against the grain. We just saw what President Obama had to go through to get the JcPA implemented. Unfortunately, for whatever uh, status quo situation we're in, in terms of uh, using US hard power to implement foreign policy all the time, it's, it's become easier to sell interventions and airstrikes and bombing raids in the Middle East than it is to sell diplomacy and peace. You have a thousand what, what if this happens and what if that happens in terms of the diplomacy but the military you're, they uh they're much less critical of what that will look like and i think it has to do with uh just the 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 dc blob as they say i think it has to do with a military industrial complex and i think even trump himself it's hard to say because none of this stuff has come out in clarity but there's always these concerns over corruption does he have any Reasons why these countries have a certain amount of there's rumors about Russia, rumors about Turkey, rumors about Saudi Arabia. So that's another aspect that is not quite clear as well. Uh, and he's also uh, has a range of donors who have uh have interest in this too. So he wants to uh, uh, satisfy their uh, what they were asking for when they when they reached out to him as campaign. Yes.
0: So one thing that I, just like one broader takeaway that I've kind of learned as I've gotten gotten more mature with regards to international relations is a lot of the times it's important to set the framing and just set the narrative and that in and of itself can help you get your policy agenda uh you know implemented and and i just was gonna want i wanted to read this quote that i think that kind of touches on and, and you know obviously with like the presidential election with trump with the trump presidency you see this very obviously where there's a narrative that's being set and it's not necessarily in line with the with the true reasoning. And so I think this quote is another way that kind of like the more centrist American, you know, government would uh, kind of set a narrative too. So for 60 years my country the United States pursued stability at the expense of democracy in this region here in the Middle East and we achieved neither. Now we are taking a different course. We're supporting the democratic aspirations of all people. Susan Rice, so that's like a quote from Susan Rice. And I think that, you know, just from my own layperson perspective, I would say it's obviously the case that the narrative that's being set is that the U.S. is pursuing some sort of stability or promoting democracy kind of idea that's obviously not true, I would think, to, to most people that are observing the, the situation more in depth. What evidence would you say is tangible evidence that the U.S. is not, you know, supporting this kind of, like, stability narrative? What, 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 how would you say that that's undermined
1: in action? Uh, look, the war... In Iraq itself, if you just take away the chaos that it that it led to for years within the country. Led to the domino effect that even that led to strong elements of ISIS, uh, a lot of the founders were f- former Ba'athists from the Iraqi military that. Uh, felt scorned or disrespected post de-Baathification. Iraq and enjoyed the, the ranks of the ranks of ISIS, if you look at the spread. Of Al-Qaeda and their affiliates in the region in the chaos that was created post-Iraq invasion. They ended up in Syria. They ended up in Iraq. They grew in Yemen and elsewhere. So when you destroy these uh, the, the established... Even though, even though they're autocrats, Saddam Hussein is a terrible person. Bashar al-Assad is a terrible... Uh, person in Syria as well, but when you go in and you kind of intervene in certain ways, the, you also bring in certain chaos, you don't know what's going to happen. So you have to find smarter ways of countering these individuals that also is not going to breed chaos and death and destruction and and this, the masses of refugees, it's these horrible stories that you hear about. So I think Iraq's one uh, uh, clear example. And we can discuss Yemen as well, but this is how this, these issues keep spreading. Is, is this you, you destroy a structure and you don't uh, account for what's going to happen afterwards.
2: So Shahed, a lot of the things that you have said do make not only do they make a lot of sense, but they're also levering for thought. So I, I'm, I'm conscious of the fact that we're running out of time. So I had a few questions to ask you that I'm going to try and condense all into a single segment. So I, I remember saying earlier in the episode with... That Kenneth Waltz had said that we should give Iran the bomb. Do you yeah. do you share that opinion?
1: No, I I, no. I still I still believe that I still believe that. Look, obviously, preventing Iran from getting nuclear a nuclear weapon is important, but Iran itself is not currently pursuing a nuclear weapon. They themselves have said that if we develop a nuclear weapon our neighbors are going to create one. And that is mm-hmm. a security net negative for us, right? Mm-hmm. In regards to its ballistic missile program, that's where Iran becomes more defensive. They say, we believe a nuclear weapon is going to create problems because then Saudi Arabia is going to want to create one too. But mm-hmm. if we create this mass of missiles, it costs less, there's less backlash up front at least. And that is our deterrence mm-hmm. in itself. So it's not part of Iran's national security strategy. Mm -hmm. Uh, Depending on what intelligence review look at, the U.S. doesn't believe that Iran is pursuing it. It's it's a source of leverage for Iran, if anything. And there's our current policies that encourage Iran to maybe consider it, if anything else. So uh, I think it's not about giving Iran the bomb. It's about having a balanced approach to the region that doesn't create security... Uh, in- insecurities that will uh, cause more problems than they solve.
2: Exactly, and then create security dilemmas and things. Exactly. Like that. What's the one I'm looking for? The um, things like the instability, instability paradox, and you name it. You know, all the all the foreign relations, all the um, international relations that, theory. Right. Exactly. With the, with that same line of thought, I mean, look at Israel. You know, you know how they, how do they have to bomb? That's worth questioning. um
3: but then obviously let's pretend they don't have it let's let's pretend pretend they they don't don't have have it it.
2: but on that yeah but on that same note and it's it's always i it's always interesting because you have issues and you have scenarios such as stuxnet for example which for those who don't know was the sabotage of the iranian nuclear nuclear plants through a cyber cyber attack you know so i think that as an international community everyone's fixated on whether iran has or doesn't have nuclear weapons um, and as you've said yourself they if we are to if we are always to take things at face value if we are to say that they're not pursuing a nuclear weapon we do you think that it's outdated to have a fascination on iranian nuclear programs
1: i think going to I, it, it makes sense if iran for example was stockpiling a lot of highly enriched uranium and there was like oh wait are they going to create a bomb is that something that we should be concerned about the, it, yes, it was, it was outdated when we were in the JCPOA and we had an Iran deal that was being followed by Iran and by the rest of the signatories. So, yes, it became outdated. The problem is that the Trump administration made it relevant when Iran mm-hmm. is also withdrawing and building up its stockhold, too. So, it should be outdated. Iran, I don't believe, and there's no security assessment that believes that Iran's trying to pursue a nuclear weapon. Iran, mm-hmm. some themselves, have said they don't want to, and as as, as foreign. Uh, western governance as well so it should be outdated the concern should move from yes uranium enrichment nuclear program to Iran's foreign policy U.S. foreign policy and creating a new arrangement for the region one possibility is instead of yes talking about the, the nuclear program if you had a deal that was good you would you would that would prevent that issue from coming up again you would actually pursue some kind of Persian Gulf or regional security framework where the U.S. brings themselves in and their interests while trying to overall withdraw from the region, bring against the Saudis, bring in the Iranians, bring in everyone into onto the same table to negotiate a security framework that they can discuss among themselves and move forward from there. So I think that's possible. I think Saudi Arabia doesn't believe it needs to talk to Iran because it has this moral hazard issue that it can get away with anything. So why would you even want to Uh, even discuss something with your regional competitor at all. So that's the future for U.S. foreign policy. Uh, Right now, the nuclear program is at the forefront because the U.S. pulled out. So that can change uh, and become outdated real fast, but it isn't in this very moment unfortunately.
2: And so with those thoughts then, we should, I think it's time for us to close the episode. So everyone's heard it, Iran doesn't want to get the bomb and U.S. Get (laughs) get it back right. Um, Do you want to do you want to do any closer remarks? Maybe plug your social media, where to follow you, where to read your publications.
1: Yeah, uh, I, I, you will have my occasional publications, and uh, I'll even link this podcast down the line on my Twitter account. That's where I, I, most of my activity is at. So it's at Shahid Gorishi, which is a lot, is it might not be the easiest to spell, but I'm sure it'll be in the in the podcast bio. So you'll we'll find it there.
0: Thank you so much, Shahed, for joining us. Hopefully this discussion brings light with regards to this conflict. May the Biden administration have a better foreign policy agenda than the next three upcoming Trump administrations. Thanks so much.